on the six which follow, we'll be exploring the world of cats. The Outline, World Dispatch. It's Tuesday, October 24th, 2017. I'm Aaron Edwards. Today, writer Chris Glazik is here to talk about the family that's quietly making billions from the opioid crisis. Here's the dispatch. Power. At first glance, the Sackler family is just a rich dynasty with its name all over prestigious museums and elite schools. The Sackler Courtyard at London's Victoria and Albert Museum, the Sackler Institute for Nutrition and Science. But the Sacklers are rarely seen, and they never really speak about the source of their fortune, perhaps for a good reason. Chris Glazik wrote for Esquire last week, quote, The greatest part of their estimated $14 billion fortune tallied by Forbes came from OxyContin, the narcotic painkiller regarded by many public health experts as among the most dangerous products ever sold on a mass scale. OxyContin is a huge contributor to the opioid crisis in America. Chris goes on to say that, quote, by any assessment, the Sackler family's leaders have pulled off three of the great marketing triumphs of the modern era. The first is selling OxyContin. The second is promoting the Sackler name. And the third is ensuring that, as far as the public is aware, the first and the second have nothing to do with one another. Chris is here with me now. Hi, Chris. Hi. So who is the Sackler family and why should we care about them? Their name is all over the place, but... It's not really ubiquitous in the same way as the Koch family or the Rothschilds are. Yeah, well, it's interesting. The Sacklers are are incredibly public in some ways, and they're incredibly private in other ways. Um, You know, it's interesting you bring up the Koch brothers. I I actually fact-checked Jane Mayer's big Koch brothers piece from from 2010, which was something of an inspiration for taking on this project. And there's a lot of differences between the Koch brothers and the Sacklers. But one very important difference is that the Sacklers did not put their name on their company, which the Koch brothers did. It's called Koch Industries. Um, So this has led to a lot of confusion over the years. People are pretty familiar with the story of Purdue Pharma, which is the manufacturer of OxyContin. Uh, And there's been a lot of writing over the years about the kind of shady things that Purdue did to create the OxyContin market, which is really one of the main drivers of today's opioid epidemic. So people kind of had this idea, oh, well, the bad guys, you know, were caught and Purdue had to plead guilty to criminal charges, these executives. They didn't go to jail, but they had to like basically relinquish their jobs and pay a ton of money, very rare in pharma. So uh, there was some sense that kind of justice had been served. Um, but what people didn't realize is that Purdue was actually 100% owned by one family that also filled almost all of the board seats and actually supplied top executives for the company. So that was really the reason I was interested in the story is because we have an opioid crisis and people are pretty familiar with that, but we also have an accountability crisis and people tend to think about public health problems as the result of these large and impersonal forces that uh, take place over many years and kind of have obscure origins. And, you know, that's true to some extent, but that can also distract from the fact that a lot of social problems actually result from actions taken by individuals. And so I kind of wanted to trace... uh, you know, the the origins of this particular epidemic back to the profit motive of a particular family, because really, to an astonishing degree, it was one family that was making billions and billions and billions from it. Right. And their history traces back to the 1800s. Like, how did they first get into this pharma business? Sure. So uh, not quite the 1800s, but basically um, the Sacklers uh, were three brothers from Brooklyn who came, who grew up in Flatbush in a Jewish immigrant family. They were born in the 19-teens. And uh, they got their start, the patriarch, uh, Arthur Sackler, really got his start in medical advertising, specifically pharmaceutical advertising. 
Um, his, what he's most famous for is that he devised the marketing strategy for Valium. So uh, he basically uh, vastly expanded the universe of potential patients and customers for that drug. And his younger relatives ended up doing the same thing basically with Oxycontin in the 90s. Oxycontin had an, had an uncle uh, named M.S. Cotton. And uh, M.S. Cotton, which uh, the Sacklers released in the 80s, was a painkiller that was a time-release morphine pill, but targeted at cancer patients. And it was an excellent drug, and it helped cancer patients sleep through the night. And addiction wasn't a concern because these were terminal patients, and then they, they would be dying soon. Its patent was set to expire in the 90s, and that was basically the company's golden goose. So uh, the, the executives of the company and Sackler family members had to decide, well, what are we going to do to plug this hole? And so they had the idea to create a time-release oxycodone pill. Oxycodone and morphine are both derivatives of the opium plant. They're very similar. Morphine, though, had a particular kind of reputation. It sounded like really serious stuff. It sounded like you were dying, you were on your last legs, and ordinary doctors, like family doctors and general practitioners, were were not comfortable prescribing morphine, uh, and many of them had never done so. Oxycodone had a very different brand identity because it was an active ingredient in Percocet and Percodan, uh, which were relatively weak combination opioids, meaning they were combined with acetaminophen. And they were prescribed all the time for like minor injuries and things like that. Um, anyway, so basically they, they, they had this time-release oxycodone pill, which is basically indistinguishable from the time-release morphine pill, but marketed to a very different group of people. Instead of targeting cancer patients, they targeted 30 million back pain patients. They targeted uh, people who suffering from you know, uh, migraines, toothaches, menstrual pains, and so they pushed it on this vast universe of doctors who didn't really know better. And they, you know, they lied to doctors about its, its abuse potential also, and they implied that it was safer than other uh, opioids on the market because of its time-release characteristic. When did the abuse of the drug actually start? Was that immediately when it hit the market? Well, it wasn't immediately when they hit the market because they actually initially did target uh, Oxycodone, also, sorry, oxycotton, also to the cancer market, and uh, that was to gain formulary acceptance from Medicaid programs and from insurance companies. I, I found in an, an internal document. So once they had formulary acceptance, then they started really pounding the pavement and you know uh, making thousands, and thousands of phone calls to more ordinary doctors. So the the, the first uh, signs of abuse, really, uh, the, the uh, multiple signs of abuse, pop, bubbled up in two thousand. Um, in places like rural Maine, uh, rural Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia, places like that. And, you know, and it pretty quickly did attract media attention and, and, and attention from, from regulators. It should be noted, too, though, that, that you know, even their cancer drug, MS Cotton, had had, had abuse problems of its own. It, it commanded a very high street value, and there was actually a study done in, I think it was in Vancouver, that said it was the most prized of all uh, street opioids. But, you know, cancer patients basically took their pills, and so they didn't, they didn't sell them on the black market. Um, but when you had OxyContin being marketed to, you know, thousands and thousands of ordinary doctors who were encouraged to prescribe you know, huge volumes to, to patients who might not need it, and particularly to patients who might not need it in places that, uh, you know, suffer from extreme poverty, there's a huge incentive for those people to flip, turn around and just sell their pills instead of taking them. To zoom out just a little bit, I'm curious what drew you to this story and wanting to tell the story of the Sackler family and their connection to these drugs. Well, you know, I mean, it combines two uniquely American problems. One is medical corruption. Uh, Most places don't really have that because most places don't have a private system. 
and uh, billionaire democracy. Uh, you know, billionaires exert tremendous control in this country, not, not, over, not only over business, which may seem obvious, but also over the arts and higher education. Um, and, you know, billionaires have tr tremendous ability to, uh, you know, to, to launder their reputations through donations to elite institutions. And that's something that certainly seems to have happened in the case of the Sacklers. I mean, the, the Sacklers, I mean, what they say and what they're their people who've taken their money say is that they are committed to excellence and they're, they're very coveted as donors actually because they, what they do is they'll, they'll go into universities and science departments, they'll say, who's your best scientist? Uh, and they say, we're, we're going to write them a, a huge, you know, multi-million dollar check to do whatever they want. Um, but they've always been very interested in, you know, in the arts and the sciences. And that, that comes from Arthur Sackler, who, who really, uh, you know, would, would pass jobs along to his younger brothers, kind of set his younger brother's path in life, would buy companies secretly and then have his younger brothers operate them for him. And, you know, he basically came to art collecting in the 1950s. And he was so secretive about his business stuff. Um, art was a way for him to be very public about something. And you know, I, I read uh, this kind of you know, limited edition memoir, there's like 200 copies that his second wife self-published. And, she, you know, she basically says that the art collecting ended their marriage, that he became a, an addict. Um, and they would just get these like, shipments all the time and that their house was just filled with boxes of unopened Chinese artifacts because he was trying to build the biggest collection there was. And, you know, and he did end up then exerting a lot of control over museums because they wanted his Chinese artifacts. And so he was able to extract these really favorable terms from them when he would donate or lend things. You know, it, it, it seemed important to me to start to look at the accountability question and the complicity question. And you have, you know, all these universities and museums kind of taking this Oxycontin money. No one seems to have raised it as a potential concern. And uh, that's largely because people just don't know. And did you speak to anyone in the family? I spoke to some people who are Arthur's descendants who were divested from Oxycontin, or, or you know, they, they actually objected to the word divested. They said they were never owned any part of Purdue to begin with. Basically, when Arthur, Arthur did have a share of Purdue, but when he died, his estate was bought out by the other two brothers. So, uh, you know, it happens to be the case, the further you get from Purdue, the more left-wing the Sacklers get. And so Arthur's descendants, who don't have anything to do with pharma, or, or at least, you know, have nothing to do with Oxycontin. I mean, they still got, you know, Valium money. But um, they uh, are very progressive and, you know, seemingly not comfortable with their cousin's, um, you know, business empire. So, so, you know, they were eager to kind of set that record straight. So what are the potential outcomes of all of this? Like, what is a, a, a worst-case scenario for the Sackler family uh, with all this happening? Well, you know, the, the kind of potential legal trouble they could find themselves in is, is a complex question. Um, you know, I, I, it was basically explained to me by different plaintiffs' lawyers that they're unlikely to have their family fortune touched by pending litigation, but there's a ton of pending litigation against Purdue. So, uh, you know, and, and it's very likely that the opioid manufacturers might have to agree to what's called a master settlement, kind of like what happened in Big Tobacco uh, in the 90s. And, uh, you know, because they're now being sued by, like, every jurisdiction and every state, you know, counties, cities, it's they're kind of, you know, they're, they're being encircled. And uh, the game theory of that is such that even just trying to f litigate each of those individual lawsuits becomes impossibly expensive for the company. They basically just have to agree to some big master thing. That's what happened to, to tobacco in the late 90s. So, you know, Purdue could well go bankrupt depending on how the litigation goes. You know, would that then end up putting the family's fortune in peril is an interesting question. You know, Purdue is usually not the sole defendant in these suits. 
you know, because the, the big boys, Johnson and Johnson, or some of the generic manufacturers, Teva, Endo, they're often named also. And, you know, plaintiff's lawyer said it to me, like, I'm just looking for deep pockets, and there's plenty of deep pockets here without going to the Sackler family. But, you know, if Purdue had some $100 billion judgment against it and, you know, could only pay $3 billion or something, you know, it, it's possible that, that plaintiff's lawyers could start trying to go after the family. I, I think it would be complicated, though. And have you heard from anyone since the story dropped either in the family or connected to the family? No, I haven't. You know, I mean, they've pursued the strategy of silence and secrecy for so many years. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, they they think it's worked well for them. You know, today there was also just a big piece in The New Yorker. There's probably going to be other pieces I'm, I'm aware of that might be coming out. So this is a big media moment for the Sacklers. I think that they're going to have to say something at some point, but they have not thus far. You can read Chris Glazik's story, The Secretive Family Making Billions from the Opioid Crisis, in the November issue of Esquire or online at Esquire.com. Chris, thanks for coming on The Dispatch. Thank you. That's it for The Dispatch. Remember, if you want to catch the show every morning, subscribe in your favorite podcast app. We're in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or anywhere you listen. I'm Aaron Edwards. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories. 